From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. What was the thought process? Remember, when you prescribe that first opioid, there's a lot of things you need to think about. When you prescribe the second opioid and you continue that medication, it's all about benefit and risk every single time. Did you prove in that chart, if an attorney was looking at it, did you prove that the benefit outweighed the risk? And is it very clearly stated in the chart? That's John Bowman talking about the opioid crisis. We'll hear more from John later in the show. We'll also talk to Ron Miniker about leadership strategies, Frank Cohen about expert witnessing, and Craig Weberg about the MGMA annual conference. That's all coming up on this episode of Insights. But first, a word from our sponsor. What does it mean to shift to a value-based model? How can you stay competitive amidst the changes in healthcare when resources are limited? In her new book, Roadmaps to Value-Based Profitability, Jennifer Turney examines how practices can make the shift to value-based payment models and the steps it takes to do so successfully. Don't get left behind. Visit mgma.com roadmaps for more info and a preview of the book. Every fall, MGMA ventures to an exciting location for a week of education and networking at our annual conference. Along with many of my colleagues, I have the distinct pleasure of putting the show together and making it a reality. If you're an avid listener of Insights, one of these colleagues has a familiar voice. Craig Weberg is a senior editor for MGMA, and he oversees the content at this year's show. As Craig explains, there's a lot to be excited about. Every year we you know, try to do what's best for our attendees. We really try to take a look at the evaluations and see what may have been missing or how we can elevate the content. And this year, we really noticed three things that we wanted to focus in on. And those were creating more specialty content, creating more advanced content, and offering new opportunities to network with each other, the attendees, because we understand that that is a really important part of the education process. So, the first top, the first point was specialty content. We have eight new specialty pre-conference sessions that uh, talk about different uh, ownership models. So we've got independent practices that are meeting together. We've got hospital affiliated practices that are meeting together. We've got surgical practices, primary care practices, and a host of others where the the, the information and the, the education is specifically focused on those specialties. So. Uh, the advanced content, we have, we went through a process of interviewing each of the speakers before we accepted them, and we told them what we were needing, and we, you know, are requiring people bring items such as checklists and helpful tools to help people bring more advanced content, advanced learning, and takeaways that are going to be really super helpful to the attendees. And then the networking you know, we have intentionally designed a lot of our education, so we make sure that we've got opportunities for people to meet and talk. This year, we have 180 educational sessions, and as Craig mentioned, we interviewed every speaker. Now, normally, we can take these submissions and group them together by topic area. However, this year, we have some outliers that don't fit into our normal categories, and we're excited about these sessions and had to have them at the show. Today, I'm talking with a few of these outliers about their sessions. First up is John Bowman. 
John is the founder and CEO of SureMed Compliance and his session, Assessing and Documenting Legitimate Medical Purpose When Prescribing Opioids and Other Medication, immediately caught our attention. John was working in the pharmaceutical industry in Florida at the beginning of the opioid crisis. He witnessed up close how opioids can destroy lives and businesses. This led him to his work educating healthcare professionals about a prescriber's civil and criminal risk when prescribing opioids. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different factors that played into wh- why we, we are where we are right now. And I, and I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, the medical community plays a, a large role, obviously, in the failings that have happened. I mean, all across the board, there's blame to be given. I mean, we can look at specifically at the FDA and and we can look at messaging that was allowed to take place by some of the pharma companies in the 90s that um, was inaccurate. I mean, based on, you know, very, very little information in acute settings. I mean, I think um, if, you, if, you, if you're not familiar with the book Dreamland, anybody who's listening to this, I, I highly encourage you, uh, shamelessly encourage you to read the book Dreamland by S- Sam Kenyon's because it's a very um, good uh, description of why we are why we're here, or why, why we are where we're at right now. But you did have, you had misinformation in the 90s. You had pharma companies telling physicians that opioids were not addictive, um, that there was no ceiling to how much you could prescribe. You had, you know, um, physicians that were being rated by their patients on how well they controlled pain. And those physicians could lose privileges at hospitals. They were kicked out of group settings sometimes um, because they didn't manage pain enough. So the pendulum was kind of all the way over on one side where physicians were being told treat pain as the fifth vital sign and you need to make sure that you're prescribing enough opioids to patients that need it. And then all of a sudden, we, we start to realize that maybe some of the information that we had wasn't right. And uh, there was a very, very abrupt and quick and, and, and aggressive change to uh, the, the, the guidelines and how physicians were supposed to prescribe. And so one of the failings really is, is that, you know, you have to imagine if you're a doctor and you've spent the last 15 years prescribing opioids a certain way, you've built your practice that way. The workflow of the practice, and this is kind of where I think some of the, these are some of the unspoken things that that people know is real, but for some reason or another, it typically doesn't come up in conversation when we talk about solving the opioid epidemic. Time is the biggest enemy of the well-meaning physician. Now, certainly there's doctors out there that are prescribing and doing it the wrong way intentionally. And, And most of those, I can tell you the DEA and the state boards have done a really good job at figuring out where those doctors are. And, and many of them have been removed, but we're not, the, 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 we're not in the same place we were four or five, six years ago where you had liberal prescribing to opioid naive patients. We're at a completely different place now. We've got a whole population of patients that have been depend, that are dependent on these opioids, biologically dependent, and can't stop even if they wanted to. And we've got physicians that are terrified to, to, do, to manage those patients. And so you know, you, you see this inverse relationship between opioid prescriptions starting in about 2012 and an increase in, um, in, in, in overdoses. So you've got prescriptions going down, overdoses rapidly rising. Well, you, you know, intuitively, you would think that doesn't make sense. But what's happening is you have all of these patients that were started on opioids that became chemically, de- you know, physically dependent on them. And once they're stopped because of the regulatory scrutiny that's occurring, and, and physicians are being afraid to manage these patients. They go and they find uh, illegal fentanyl and, and, and analogs like that on the street. Uh, they take whatever they can get their hands on. You know, we know addiction is a disease of the brain. And that means that while somebody with the disease of addiction may prefer one drug to another, if they, if they can get their hands on anything, they'll usually take it to try and help with side effects and, uh, and try and also help with the way that they feel, make them feel better. So 
Um, I think there's a, a lot of failings. I think it's, there's a lot of blame to be, to be put on, on what was allowed to be uh, disseminated in the 90s. But if we look at where we're at now and, and how we move forward, you know, doctors still have the same amount of time in the office as they always had. There's only so many hours in the day. And yet all these physicians have built these practices, like I said, seeing a certain amount of patients every day. And with declining reimbursement and physicians scrambling as hard as they can to try and find um, alternate uh, revenue streams and things like that, you know, it's, it's hard to tell a doctor, hey, you've been spending five to 10 minutes with these patients, but really, tr if you're going to actively verify each patient's suitability, you need to spend, you know, 30 minutes, an hour with these patients. Well, you can say that to a physician and they say, there's just no way we could do that. And so uh, I think one of the failings is, you know, there needs to be, I mean, we look at individualized care and, and there's this big push recently to try and let's look at the patient holistically and, and individually. Well, that takes time and time is money to the physician. So as long as they don't have the time in the office to spend and do that with the patient, patients are still going to fall through the cracks. And I can tell you that, you know, what, what physicians used to say is, oh, I know my patient population. I've been with them for 10 years. I know who's at risk and who's not. And then all of a sudden we started to do urine drug testing in offices. And wow, wasn't that a wake up call for a lot of physicians? They were thinking that this, this woman that they'd been treating or this man they'd been treating for years that was low risk is actually high risk. And then we started to look at the PDMP data and we started to see that patients were doctor shopping. And even the ones that were, were the least likely in our minds to be the ones that were misusing these substances are the ones that are doing it. So, mm -hmm. so what are some of the steps then that can be taken to get a better handle on the problem? And I'm talking about it strictly from the, the clinical side, the provider side. What can they do better as far as managing it to, uh, if that means getting patients somehow weaned off of uh, these addictive drugs or uh, just manage them properly? What's, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, I think the first thing that physicians, uh, and, and a lot of them are doing this, by the way, but I think the first thing is understanding who I have in my practice. Understanding which patients have the disease of addiction, which these patients have a higher propensity for it. And that means stratifying your patients into risk. Knowing which ones are going to, that, that have a likelihood of having adverse uh, uh, events, which could be overdose, which could be a lot of other side effects and things that come with that. The other thing I think that's really important is for an understanding of dependence. And I know doctors know this very well. Unfortunately, I feel like um, regulators um, sort of have missed the boat on this. We, we see court cases where a physician has had their license revoked for treating a, a physically dependent patient. And, and, and that's where you start getting into kind of the legal standard that they look at and how, they, how, they, um, you know, how they're defining some of these legal terms. Um, but we have, we have a whole population of people that have been on these medications for years. And that's from the, the liberal prescribing that happened in the 90s and the early 2000s. They're they are in the patient population. They are, a lot of them uh, were started because of an acute injury became dependent on the medication, and now it's just simply treating that acute injury, or pardon me, treating that dependence. A lot of patients were taking this for pain, and um, they started to, they, they had an issue or, you know, some kind of a, a loss in the family or, or some kind of traumatic event that happened, and now they're simply coping. And so they're taking it for coping reasons. They're, they're trying to treat emotional pain rather than physical. And so identifying who they are in the practice, and then coming up with a custom-tailored plan on how we can manage those patients. Most patients, by the way, that have the disease of addiction, or pardon me, actually just about all the patients we've encountered and that we know that have addiction, they don't want to be addicted to the medication. 
that if you could go back and just go to that one time where you took that first pill, they'd say, I would never have taken it. But they're in the throes of it and they can't get out of it. And many patients that are dependent on the medication, if they just had uh, belief and faith in their physician that if they went to their doctor and said, hey, listen, I don't want to be on this medication anymore and I don't need it or I don't need it at the dose that I'm taking it at, that the physician wasn't going to abruptly stop them, they would have those open conversations. And of course, like I said, with the limited time that the physician has in the office, which by the way is, is truly the, 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 the biggest enemy, the biggest enemy is the, is the element of time. If physicians had more time, they'd be able to uncover these things with patients. They'd be able to have these conversations and they could tell patients, you know, we're going to put a plan together that tapers you slowly, that gets you off the medication or gets you to a lower dose. Um, rather than what's happened, you know, recently is what we've seen is with, with the new guidelines, physicians have started to rapidly reduce um, patients' doses. And, and we know that that's when you start to see that aberrant behavior. That's when you start to see patients going out and getting other substances. Another session that caught our attention is from Ron Miniker. Ron is an administrator at the Mayo Clinic. His session is titled, Achieving Personal and Professional Success Through Effective Leadership Strategies. Although leadership is a common topic at annual conference, we still consider Ron an outlier based on his unique experiences. During his time in healthcare, Ron has worked in 19 different specialties, which help shape his leadership and knowledge base. Yes. So like Mayo Clinic, Marshfield Clinic, rotated um, rotates administrators, or at least they did at the time. I left Marshfield Clinic in 1996. But, um, you know, I was always working, you know, in various specialties. So I remember starting off, I was um, internal medicine, geriatrics, um, uh, um, oncology, and then I rotated into cardiology, and then I did pediatrics and geriatrics. I did those two at the same time. That was kind of weird um, because I was on both ends of the life spectrum. So um, as a result, in my 11 years there, I, I was involved in 18 different clinical areas. So as a result, it gives me a, a wonderful opportunity to see how different practices operate because anesthesiology operates differently than cardiology and pediatrics different than internal medicine. And they have their different cultures and different nuances and then different types of allied health staff that support the practice. So, um, you know, that's why I mentioned 19 specialties. I, mm -hmm. Another one after I got the Mayo Clinic. Right. Now, one of your areas of expertise is leadership. Do you think kind of bouncing around to all those different specialties, did that help you shape your, your viewpoint of leadership? Or what role did that play for you? Well, it was absolutely, you know, so... You know, when I um, obtained my doctorate in organization development, I, I became more formally aware of the term action learning. So action learning is learning on the job. So at Mayo Clinic, we use a model of 70-20-10. We, we learn from 70% from our experiences, 20% from our, our coaches and mentors, um, and then 10% from going to classes. So as a result of so many varied experiences, I'm blessed with those experiences. So what I learn in one specialty, I apply in the next specialty. And then what I learn in that specialty may be applicable for the next specialty. So I'm able to learn and apply the knowledge in a very practical manner. So it's been absolutely instrumental for a variety of reasons, that being one of them, 
And then another is, frankly, humility. When you become an administrator in a brand new practice, and you don't know anything about that practice, and you are instantly dumb, it forces you to ask a lot of questions. And when you ask questions, you learn. So as a result, I'm blessed that that was the model that I had um, early in my healthcare career in the 80s at Marshfield Clinic, and Mayo Clinic does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing you said that was interesting, and I've heard other people when they talk about leaders, uh, it's important to be humble, to have humility uh, in your role, uh, someone who can be approachable and not always uh, you know, commanding everyone's attention. Um, one of the other things that I find interesting is being curious, you know, having that lifelong curiosity about topics, subjects, people, whatever it may be. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, you, you hit on a couple of key topics. So in the talk that I'm going to be giving on Wednesday um, with Michael O'Connell, one of my partners in leadership development, um, I will be talking a little bit about my integrated leadership model that was um, you know, in the book that was originally published by MGMA. And as a result of doing um, journal entries, and in this case, 2,205 journal entries, I synthesized those ideas into a leadership model, which I'll be introducing. And the first part of the model is how do you lead yourself? And you lead yourself through learning. And you address both of those issues. You learn by reflecting, having humility, which is what you just talked about, but also having curiosity. Because when you are displaying humility, and one of the books that we utilize a lot at Mayo Clinic is Humble Inquiry, the key keys are there are humble, i.e. you don't know the answer, and inquiry, you're asking questions. So it's leading yourself through learning, which clearly happens as a result of being curious. Now, the rest of the model is leading others by developing relationships, leading the organizations by achieving excellence, and then this all-important work-life integration and synergy. So that's what I'll be presenting along with a much deeper dive into effective strategies for change management. So that's, what, that's going to be my part of this session. The last session we'll be looking at today is from Frank Cohen. You may remember Frank from previous episodes, or maybe you've seen him at past conferences. We love having Frank on the show, and this time is no different. He's here to talk about his session, so you want to be an expert witness. Frank will explain what it takes to become qualified as an expert and the best practices to adopt when preparing for testimony. There's five things, really, that we're talking about. The first is, what does it take to be an expert? I mean, what qualifications, what, you know, what temperament, because that's a big part of it, what kind of things, you know, to expect, whether um, uh, you're in a position from a time perspective to do it, um, from your work position, your, you know, qualifications, everything. The second is, we're going to talk about what do attorneys expect from an expert? And I have some uh, excellent attorneys that are going to be um, with Brenna Manna Diamond, who are going to be on the podium with me, who have extensive experience in litigation 
uh, these types of cases, healthcare cases in particular. And they're going to explain to people, what do they expect from an expert? And then I'm going to talk about what an expert should expect from an attorney, because we need to have respect and flexibility and uh, timeliness for payment and preparedness and whatnot. Um, and then we're going to talk about how to prepare and write expert reports. That's maybe one of the most important parts of this. This includes how your CV has to be written and what elements have to be included in it. And then finally, we're going to talk about how to be a good deponent, that is, um, uh, in a deposition, a witness in a deposition, and a testifying witness If for those cases when you're called to a trial where you have to testify in front of a judge or a jury. I was working on a, a, a case, and this is where it was a, a, a provider who had already been convicted of, um, of fraud, unfortunately, in, in a civil perspective. They, and the government was coming after them for the loss estimate, and they wanted like a huge amount of money, like $7 million. And $6 million of that was based on two extrapolation audits that were done um, on this physician's um, clinics. And, and I, after reviewing them, I was pretty certain that you know, those extrapolations shouldn't stand. And it's not that I would like to represent physicians convicted of fraud because I don't. Okay. But this was a case where the government was, was trying to take advantage of this doctor. And, you know, if you let that go, there's no telling, there's no telling where that stops. The next person they take advantage is of you or me or one of our physicians. So anyway, um, I was, trying to explain the difference between an average or a mean and a median uh, to the judge. And uh, um, he asked me to, if I could find a way to explain it in simple terms. And this was the example I gave, it was one of my favorites. I said, so pretend uh, a statistician walks into a bar and he's got a, a piece of paper and a pencil with him. And, and there's a hundred people in the bar and he goes around and he asks each of those hundred people what their, what their annual income was. And so they, they give him that annual income, and when he's done, he calculates it out lot. And lo and behold, the average or the mean and the median are the same. It's about $43,000 per year. And, uh, and now Bill Gates walks in and orders a beer. All of a sudden, the average income is now you know, something like $7.3 million per person, but the median stayed the same because the median is not subject to those um, outlier points. And the judge, the judge uh, looks at me, and, and he says, well... I, I just have one thing I don't understand. And I said, what's that? He said, uh, or no, he said, I have one thing that actually I don't believe in there. I said, what's that? He said, I don't believe a statistician would walk into a bar and ask people how much they earn. It was just one of those funny moments where, where, you know, the judge was making a joke out of it. But, but in the end, in the end, we got him, we compelled that judge in the federal court to throw out both of those extrapolations. So not only did we win in that case, but it established a federal precedent, precedent in federal court that extrapolations are not always acceptable in these cases. And that to me was huge because that, that advantages everybody in our industry. These are just some of the outliers on tap for MGMA's annual conference. Stay tuned for future episodes, which will highlight more speakers from the event, as well as other healthcare experts. Coming up on August 21st, We'll have an episode about diversity in a medical practice that we're excited about. Thanks to our guests, John Bowman, Craig Weberg, Frank Cohen, and Ron Miniker. All of today's guests can be heard speaking at MGMA's annual conference, October 13th through 16th in New Orleans. For more information, 
check out our annual conference blog at mgma.com fuse. To register, visit mgma.com slash bigeasy19. Also, a note for our regular listeners. We're changing up our format and we'll be releasing an episode every Wednesday. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from our listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening. <laughs>